right, let's go ahead and pick back up chapter chapter 6, the end of chapter 6, and actually this whole section is going to finish up in verse 1 of, of chapter chapter 7. <clears throat> now, I've been encouraged. One is <clears throat> encouraged by seeing how Paul models models his his love and his love for people who gave him a hard time, if you will, and his ability to challenge them biblically and in doing so, um, let them be confronted with, with the gospel. I know I, I'm, I'm sure I fail in that way many, many times. You know, you want to encourage somebody to, you know, to do better or to not to do better necessarily, but hey, to 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 excel in the spiritual walk, and you and you try to encourage them in that way. And Paul does so in a very, very good, you know, very kind way. You just see through his letter how he's gracious and kind and loving towards towards his towards the sheep that he's shepherding here. And yet, nevertheless, at times he's 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 confronted with giving giving them hard hard truths and how that applies. And the whole passage here started in verse fourteen of chapter six and finishes in verse one of chapter seven. This past week, um, Jacob gave Jane and I the, the, the privilege of, of speaking in chapel. It was Valentine's Day, so I don't know if we were the Valentine couple that can you know. Show kids what love is all about, but uh, I shared with the kids how you know Jane chased after me until I quit running and then gave in and, and uh, been mesmerized ever since. And so we had a chance to share with the kids a little bit. Wow! And <laughs> and I share with the kids different principles. First of all, three questions. First, what what is love? You know, we're talking about Valentine. What is love? And they. You know affection, and then we, of course we talk about love as God defines it, and so we walk through that. Then I walk through, you know, not encouraging these little dating relationships in high school or anything like that. Or I hear crazy things about sixth grader breaking up with somebody. I mean, they you know they get involved in this, in this cultural language and stuff. And I says here here's here's what I share. I, sh- I share with them what I share with my kids. It says here's five non-negotiables you should look for in someone you're going to be drawing your affection towards. And one of them came back to 2 Corinthians. You know, first, the first principle is, and I, I, we asked the kids questions, and some of them were really good. One girl, they don't use bad language. That's very good, you know. And so we walked through their, their, uh, their questions, and, and the first one, of course, on my list was, are they a believer? Not a believer in name, because we're all believers, but... Are they a true believer, and what does that look like? And so I walked through briefly this this concept or this idea, this principle of not being un, unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, of course, Paul doesn't start there. That's one of the practical applications of this text. But Paul is seeing it in a much broader picture about them. The fact that they were yoked with with the world made it conflictual with him to have a to be reconciled to them. So what he's telling them is, hey. Is, is the, the marriage principle that we use here is a byproduct, is an application of the text, but it's not really what he drives, what drives him in this text. What is stating is that obviously you should not, if you're a believer, you should not want to enter in covenant agreements, marriage being one of them, just how you bond yourself with the unbelieving world. So I say that because every time we conform to the word and we're confronted by the word, 
if we're offended by the word, let, let, let us reconcile that. Why is, this, why is this passage bothering me? Why does this disturb me? Not because that I say it a certain way and they misunderstood, and they, you know, it's it, of course my job is to <laughs> communicate graciously, but let let the text and just not filter an experience with this or that as a as a justification. You know, someone can, and I've seen this. My in our family, I saw this someone that was not saved, married a professing believer, and by the grace of God, she got saved, and they raised their kids in godly fashion, and, and praise the Lord for that. But that's by the grace of God. It's not a model for, or we need to still reconcile what Scripture says about that. So, just just encourage us in that way as we as we process this and and just embrace what Scripture says about it. In sixteen, in verse sixteen, the second half of verse sixteen, he had he had given the descriptions right. He had given these rhetorical contrasts in verses fourteen through sixteen, and then he makes a statement in verse. In, in the verse 16. So we're going to start there, 16b. He says, For what? For we are the temple of the living God, as God says. And now he's going to start quoting. Now what's complicated a little bit in the quotations that are going to follow is that he doesn't, he doesn't quote from a clear text, meaning he does actually a collage of text, um, and he does so... I throw French in there just so that you know, just to annoy Kevin for one thing, and just uh, collage means to glue things together. Actually, in French, so the, he, he brings actually multiple Old Testament text. He does so to do this. He does so, so first of all because they can relate to the Old Testament text. They understand that, and what he's going to do because he's already established. Remember in chapter three, he's already established that we're under a new covenant in chapter three in Christ. So he's talking about the new covenant chapter chapter three. So what he's taken here in this passage, in the next three sections here is he's taken their Old Testament understanding of the people of God, what God expected out of the people of Israel, and he's, he's now applying that to the new covenant in Christ. In other words, the same way that your people of Israel were to be separated from the world, so are, are you called to be separated. So not everyone agrees on exactly the text that he's using because he's using multiple pieces there. Again, he doesn't go back to one specific text. So I'll take some of the texts that I think he was using and other commentators, but that not, again, everyone agrees on, on this. So let's, let's read that first part, verse 16 through, through 18, and then we'll, 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 we'll take apart verse 1 where he completes his thoughts there. Verse 16 says, that God said, so I will make my dwelling among them, and I'll walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, Verse 17, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father for you, or to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So I'm going to just break that down into three segments that he, this three sections here that he's using. The first part is verse 16, and the last part of verse 16, where he says, I will make a dwelling among them, and, the, and I'll walk among them. The context here is Leviticus, Leviticus 26. Perhaps even this last statement from Ezekiel chapter 37. I say this because they're, they're understanding. But always, always interesting to know, okay, what are they hearing? What are they understanding? He's, he's connecting the dots for them. He's connecting the dots between what was expected of Israel as a nation and what is expected of them as the temple of God, as a church of God, as believers now. And he's making that connection for them. And he draws from, of course, 
Old Testament for that. So in Leviticus, he is giving the conclusion of a series of blessings in chapter 26 where, where God will confer upon the people if they observe his commandments. So in, in Leviticus, in this context, he's discussing God's blessing upon his people when they're obedient to his commandments. And then in, in Ezekiel 37, God speaks of the covenant with his people. He said, they shall be my people. So he establishes the covenant with his people and re, reiterates that in, in Leviticus 26 and then again in Ezekiel chapter 37. So again, he's, he's bringing all these pieces together that they're understanding because they're familiar with the language and he's piecing it together and bringing it over to a new covenant understanding. Verse 17. Therefore, three admonitions here, right? Go out from their midst, be separate from them, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. Quoting from Isaiah and then Ezekiel 20. The historical context here for them is a Babylonian exile. When they were going, when they were going into exile, he was telling them what? Be, be separate you know, from them. And uh, the, the, you're in the midst. And, of course, we understand that you know, Israel being in their own environment. Now they're in a very godless environment and giving them the admonition to... Uh, stay separate and not be unclean, even though they're being immersed beyond their will and taken into captivity. But God will welcome and, and how God will will gather his people. And then the last verse, verse 18, says, I will be a father to you. And I like I like this piece here because he makes, he makes I'm going to say a subtle change, but probably not so subtle. But subtle enough for us, but clear to them. So now he's drawing from verse 18, I'll be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Drawing from Second Samuel chapter 7, where in that context God is speaking to David. And when God is speaking to David, God is saying that God will be a father to David, and David will be his son. And then God promises that David's dynasty will endure forever. So that's the context that he first says this. But what I find interesting here is that Paul's focus is the promise of God for the people of a new covenant. So he alters this promise that was given to David with Isaiah 43. What's that alt- that sm- small alteration made all the difference in their those listening. What does he say? He says, you'll be what? Sons and daughters to me. See, now he, he went from the promise that God gave to David to be, I'll be your father and you'll be my son, to broadening <coughs> that to the new covenant Consequently, the promise to David now includes all of God's sons and, and daughters. So the point being here, the point being here is that the Corinthians haven't been adopted, sons and daughters, verse 18, are heirs of all the promises of the covenant and as such must separate themselves from impurity. Paul is going to take this Old Testament command and give it a New Testament context and a New Testament application under a new covenant. And just as Israel was to be separate while exiled in the godless lands, so are we as believers called to be separated from the godless societies we live in. The text has a broader application than simply, like we mentioned, simply not being married to an unbeliever. The application part is a much broader, but they understand that when they compare the, to the, all the exhortations and commands that were given to the people of Israel. So the thrust of it to, for them to understand is, he says, I'm, you know, you're called to be 
a separate nation in a godless society. It's hard to do that when you're when you're immersed in in a Christianized culture. One one blessing about working as a missionary overseas is that no one claims Christianity. As a matter of fact, they they're antagonistic towards Christianity. You know, that's for the weak. That's that's a tradition, and that's just a man-made thing. God is a man-made invention. You have all these. So at least when you're overseas, you have this. The darkness and light is quickly evident. It was never it was never a, a, a problem with our neighbors knowing that we were different than them. It was there was never any question as to when you walk into a, a society who doesn't have a, a Christian undercurrent, who you are and who you're not, and you have to take position. So very quickly, you have to take a stand because you don't blend, you don't mix. I remember going to uh, they have a festival of music. And so festival music is the longest day of the year, so it's what, June, June 21st, somewhere around there. So what, the, what France does is they block all the – they give all these neighborhoods the ability to, to block their streets, have little neighborhood parties, and, and, and all the neighbors bring food together. And it's a really a, a fun time. But I remember walking up to one of those, and we have friends in the neighborhood. Oh, boy, here comes the preacher. And so here you are thinking you're going to blend in, go incognito. <laughs> Why? Because there's an obvious contrast between, not because I was a missionary, not because I was a preacher. There's an obvious contrast because where they are is totally opposite of where we are. Jeff, another aspect of that one time, literally this end of the neighborhood was angry with this end of the neighborhood, and they had two separate parties, and we went to both. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in the unbelieving world, it's not, it's not hard to get offended, right? Where are the tables going to be? In the center of the neighborhood? Oh, I think there's more room up here. I think there's more room down there. And they don't get along. Well, of course, we're the Christians, and we're ministering to everybody, so we're going back and forth, and they got offended by that, you know, or noticed that part. And I, I, In many ways, you have a much greater challenge in American society than you do in a foreign country when it comes to you standing up for you know, I wish almost you could experience living a year overseas because you're going to you're going to have to start expressing yourself and you start evaluating your life and you're going to measure yourself and you're going to be up against darkness you're going to be up against unrighteousness you're going to be up against wickedness you're going to be up and I know you experience these things I'm not suggesting American is, is, is oblivious of that what I'm saying though is that you're forced to be in a situation where you're you're obviously it's oil mixing with water, and you know it, and everyone else around you knows it. Here it's difficult because you have to make that, you know, you, you, you do the same things. You shop where they do. You go to the little league with them. You play the sports with them. You, go, you, all, you do everything the same, and everybody kind of has, you know, bless God, you know, and we, we pray at the end of You know, I, I see at the LU game with the other day, they're playing these teams, and they have a big circle, and they pray together at the end. And what, it's just part. It's just part of our drinking water, but what it does is sometimes it, it keeps us from really distinguishing and taking positions. Not because we're conflictual or we want to rub people the wrong way, but because we we don't take we don't really take a stand for where we need to be. Two quotes. The first one is from Joe Bailey. It said the evangelical the evangelical church is sick, so sick that people are crowding in to join us. We're a big flock. 
big enough to permit remarriage of divorced people outside of the exceptions of the word of God, big enough to permit practicing homosexuals to pursue their lifestyle, big enough to tolerate almost anything pagans do. We're no longer narrow. It's a wide road of popular acceptance for us. Like Kent's comment as well. He said, the command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is a command not to be yoked together with those in the church who oppose the truth. Now, of course, he's confronted with those in the church that were opposing him. Unbelievers in the church. Paul was concerned about the enemy within, the unbelieving in the church. To be yoked together in the unbelieving is, in effect, to reject the gospel of reconciliation and deny their own authenticity. It's a powerful statement he makes at the end there. To be yoked together with the unbelieving is in effect to reject the gospel of reconciliation, which is what Paul was struggling with, and deny their own authenticity in the process. So just that exhortation and that admonition he gives by quoting the Old Testament prophets was taking what they understood to be separation from this godless people around them and encouraging, of course, to do likewise. Chapter 7, verse 1. We're just going to read that one verse, and then, if time allows, we'll read verses through, I think, verse 7. Interesting enough, verse 8. Now, we have guest speakers the next couple of weeks, but because of the mirrored services, that really changed to Sunday school. In the past, with the mirrored services, when we had the three services, we would have combined Sunday schools and those kind of things. We don't have that with the mirrored service system. So we have Tom uh, coming next week, a missionary to England. We're trying to partner with him. He was here in December, so he'll, he'll be preaching here next week. Then there's Truth and Light Conference after that, but there's no, no really change in Sunday school pattern for that. But I thought it interesting because... The verses that follow are about grief, and that's what the truth in life is going to be on. So I hesitate next week to, you know, to to talk about it because I'm going to. They might contradict everything I had to say afterwards. And, you know, all these experts coming in and talk about grief. So, but we'll walk through what he says here: grief unto repentance, godly grief. He describes that in verses that will follow. So we'll see that next week. Look at verse one of chapter seven. And I don't know why my phone is beeping. Everybody knows where I'm at right now. So, 7-1, he says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion completion rather, in the fear of God. Now, I'm going to do one thing that I don't do a lot, really, is just, you know, you could break, when you, when you go through text, you could either fly over text and get the big concepts, or you could break it down in, in the specific weeds of it, and I'm going to do that a little bit in... In verse 1, because I think some things about that are interesting. The first one is, starts out by saying since. Paul moves, what's interesting here is in verse 1, chapter 7, he moves from the indicative to the imperative. And here's, here's why I found, I found that part interesting. First of all, the indicative is stating facts, right? It's factual. It's the, it's the possession of promises that he's going to list in the previous verses we just read. So there's, you, you go from the factual statement to the imperative, the imperative is what? Is the command, the order to cleanse yourself from defilement. You go from, uh, you go from the imperative to the goal of Christian life, which is bringing <coughs> holiness to completion. So he'll finish that in that verse. Barnett says it this way. I think I, I like what Barnett says. He says, imperative rest on 
indicative, or what ought rests on what is. What is, he, what, is he trying to, what is he trying to lay the foundation for? What he's saying is that what we do, right, what the indicative, which is the, the imperative, which is the order and the command, rest on the indicative that he gives. The imperatives, the commands that we have, rest on factual truths. He laid the foundation. He laid the foundation of truth. That's the indicative part. Now he lays the imperative part which is the, the action, which is the order, which is the command. Since we have these promises, let us cleanse. The imperatives of our lives, those actions where we decide this is what I should be doing, this is what I ought to be doing, are not based on what I've lived through, what I've experienced, what someone else has told me. It's lived, it's based on the imperatives, the indicatives, rather the facts given to us in the word and the promises that are laid out here. So Barnett compares that from the imperative rest on the indicative that is presented. So he laid the foundation, he completes it here in verse in verse one. The promises lay the foundation for how we should respond. In other words, what he's what Paul's case that he made, here's the promises, here's how we should respond to that. We should all walk away from reading that by saying, I want to be separated. I want to be cleansed. I want to walk in holiness. That's how we should walk away from the foundation that and the indicatives that he laid. In our case, is to be holy and to be separated. Since, he says what? We have these promises. What are these promises? Well, you go back, he just, he just laid them out in a broader context, but even in the immediate context, what are these promises? Going back to verse, verse 17. Verse 16, I'll dwell with and I'll walk with my people. I, I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you. He, he laid the foundations of, of course, going back even to the previous chapter of his reconciliation with them and what that reconciliation looks like and the expectation from there that we'll be reconciled one with another. And he promises that those who uh, walk in truth and are obedient, that he'll welcome them, he'll bless them, and then he'll provide the, the fruit that that will bear. So he laid those promises out. He establishes that. And then he says what? He says, since we have these promises, beloved. Again, I don't usually break it down to that extent, but I found it even here. Beloved here is an adjective from the word love, agape. And you have a description of Paul. He qualifies them as the ones that he loves. Going back to what I said right first in the beginning this morning, the, the blessing of, of being in ministry, and yet as Paul, the, the need and necessity of challenging people in truth, so he's confronted with the need to exhort and admonish the church, and yet in the midst of that, I mean, we went, we've been, we're in chapter, chapter 7 now, we've been going through this book for a few months now, and what, do we, what have we seen? A lot of uh, unjust accusations, people that rose up against him, people that accused him of all these things, and he's... He, he could have in the flesh been offended because of all he's done for them and all the suffering he's done. He'll actually go through some of this in just a few moments as well. He could have been all that, but instead he says what? The ones I love, my beloved. It's a very strong term. It's not just a, 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 a courtesy statement that he's making here. So in spite of how they've questioned him, in spite of the fact that they've restricted their love towards him, remember that's verse 11 and 12, chapter 6. As a matter of fact, if you look at verse uh, verse 2, 
What's his first statement in verse 2 of chapter 7? What does he say? Make room in your hearts for us. Why? Because what did he tell in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 6? You've been restricting your love for us. But he's not, he's not scolding them. Shame on you. After all I've done for you. That's what be our fleshly response. I've sacrificed so much. I've done so much. And you don't, you don't appreciate. That's how we're with our little teenage kids, right? You'll never have a teenage kid really fully understand or appreciate what you're doing for them. So those of you young kids, just brace for it. They know more than you. They work harder than you. Just, 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 just let that be until they wise up to that. I, I love this, this, this statement of affection. And in this context, in spite of, of how they've dealt with him, he calls them the ones I love. And even if he finds himself at odds with him, which he does, and even if in the second part of the book, in chapter 8 and 9, he'll talk about the giving, but then he'll go back through uh, 10 through 13, he'll have to rebuke those who are in the church who have not repented, even with that. It's not, this is not, no, this is not Kumbaya church. This is, we're at odds church. The ones I love is, is a t- term of endearment that he's using. So we can appreciate Paul's consistency in his love and his commitment to his people. Contrary to human love, which is predicated upon an adequate response, Paul's love is rooted in the reality of the gospel reconciliation. Paul's love for them, and he's able to express love, and and I, I encourage I'll see many people when they're at odds with one another, couples who might be at odds with one another, to begin by expressing terms of endearment one towards another, even if you don't feel that way in the moment. Well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Well, you don't mind doing a lot of other things. You might just add being a hypocrite to your list, but, you know. (laughs) Because the love that he's expressing is rooted in the reality of the gospel, it's rooted in the reality of the fact that he's been reconciled with God, and that reconciliation brings reconciliation one with another. And so when we're at odds with other believers, we should still be able to express the ones I love, even if we're in a situation where for that moment we might be at odds. The people of Corinth were the loved ones because they were loved by God and they were his covenant people. He goes on, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Paul exhorts the Corinthians here to fulfill his calling. He says it's not, even though this is not a text that should be used to discuss a, a dualistic view of human persons, a body and soul. It's not what he's saying here. The, the statement he's making is one where it's an all-inclusive understanding of human life. There are defilements like, in their case in Corinth, the ritualistic prostitution that was going on in, in town. And then there's the pride of man and the pride of his heart. So there's body and spirit means a complete uh, 
defilement, to cleanse ourselves from every defilement. Of course, you know, I, I've been I've been in circles where that's that's the part of the problem or the dangers of a, of a fundamental circle where we focus on one aspect of that. So we don't mind focusing on the rules and basically you defile things if you don't dress a certain way, if you listen to certain music, but you have no problem being anger, bitter, and unloving. And so we, we could have that dual response, right? Oh, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm separated and I'm a believer because I don't do these things. I don't act this way. I don't say these things. I don't smoke or vape or dope or whatever it is or chew or spit and all these kind of things. My grandmother spit, and she was a always strange for me. Come back as a young kid, coming back, you know, uh, to visit my grandmother, and she had a little spitting can, you know, on the side there. <laughs> so it was a cultural cultural adaptation there to someone who lived in, in the hills of West, not West Virginia, but Abingdon, Virginia area. But we can certainly settle, can we not? We can settle for the idea that somehow we're 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 cleansing ourselves because we're acting that we've. Matthew describes that as cleaning the outside of the cup. We're good about cleaning the outside of the cup. We're good about hiding the dirty laundry before guests arrive. We're good about dusting things up when we expect company. And he says, you know, it's not just the outward body expression of it. It's the all-encompassing aspect of it. And that's addressing the issues of the heart. That's addressing their pride and arrogance as well as how they how they live their lives out as well. Bringing holiness to completion. Bringing holiness to completion. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to fulfill his calling by living a life of moral holiness. The word bringing is the idea of, of, of perfecting, carries the idea of completing something or finishing something. So this idea of bringing something and perfecting it and completing and finishing it. Bringing holiness to completion. And of course, the last statement that he makes in verse 1, which is powerful as well, in the fear of God. I put Guthrie's comment here about that. It says, neither mere caution nor a debilitating terror. The term communicates an emotional state in which one reflects upon the awesome dimensions of God's power and is appropriately sobered. As we're, we're sobered by the notion of God. We're sobered by who God is. We're sobered by what he's done for us. We're, we're there in this awesome dimension of God's power and our appropriate response to that. Paul's ministry is permeated with the gravity of his calling and the awesomeness of the God he serves. And so too does he admonish the, the Corinthians. You know, what I, would, what I would I would hate to see from a ministry perspective is some, somehow this this dichotomy between a person like myself who's in ministry and someone who's not in ministry. We're all called to the same call to holiness. My calling is not greater than anyone's call. We're called, and of course, my, my desire is that I'm in the Word, and I study the Word, and I love doing this, and I love bringing it out, I love reading it. And that's, my privilege is the fact that I can spend time in the Word, and I could, I could dedicate time to that. But we're, we're all called to that same, that same calling. We have, all have the bar is not higher for one and lower for the other. We're all called to that high calling of God and stand in, in awesomeness before Him. 
and let him operate that, that beautiful work of bringing about holiness into our lives. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Mentioned, he said, make room in your hearts for us. I mean, he's knowing this, right? Now, verse 12, he had said in chapter 6, you are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections for us, right? So now he says, make room in your hearts for us. Then he goes, he gives a list of things here. He said, we have wronged, verse 2, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. Now, again, when he says this, why is he saying this? He's saying this because others have. His, it's a response to what they have observed and experienced. So that's why he, he makes this, this statement. He, we've not corrupted anyone. We've not wronged anybody. We've not taken advantage of anyone. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts. See, again, his heart's admonition. He says, I'm not trying to, be, I'm not trying to condemn you here. Uh, you're in our hearts. We love you. You're my beloved. You're the ones we love. And then he says, to die together and to live together. Now, you could have thought that that phrase could have been backwards, right? You could have expected to see this phrase worded the other way around. To say we're going to live together and die together. Why does he flip it the other way? Why did, why is he why is he describe it this way? Because death is not the end. So actually, he focuses on the fact of dying together, that Christ might live through us, and then to live together eternally. So he flips that he flips well, I would I would have put the other hey, let's we're gonna we're gonna live together and die together. No. We're going to die together and that Christ reign in us and we'll live together eternally. This is what gives him his strength. Verse 4, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. See, he opens up his, you know, we have this impression that he's the superhero. But he said, well, I had all this fighting from without and my own fears from within. He, he opens up himself to the church here, to the believers. But God, he says, verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us. By the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by comfort which, with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, of your mourning, of your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. Then in verse 8, he'll talk about, even though I grieved you. Remember, he wrote a letter where he says, hey, now I grieve you by this letter. So he wrote another letter that we don't have recorded here. This is probably the fourth letter we have here. There's only two letters, Corinthians, that we have recorded. But there's another grieving letter where he probably gave him a talking to, which is why he's come back with this now. He says, and then he says, even I've made you grieve, I don't regret it. He walks through why, and we'll look at that Look at that next week. I trust that as we as we read these passages, you know, it, it, 
we, we, can, we can certainly read them and, and almost skim through them, and I want to balance picking a verse apart versus walking through a, a text and, and give ourselves some time to walk through it. But what, what, a, what a beautiful example Paul sets for us of not only establishing the promises of why we want to live a life separated, why he takes Israel and says, Here's, remember what God expected of Israel, here's what God expected of the temple. You are the temple. When he used that term back in, in verse 16, I mentioned this briefly last week, when he used that term in verse 16, he used the plural aspect. In other words, sometimes in 1 Corinthians, I think chapter 6, when God says that you're the temple, he uses the singular to describe the individual embodying of the temple of Christ, but then he uses the plural aspect to, to describe them as a body of Christ, and this is what he does in verse 16. Why? Because he's making the correlation, he's making the link between Israel as a nation and you as a new covenant nation, the body of Christ and the church of Christ. A lot of good, a lot of good things here in this passage, and a lot of things that were, were a blessing, blessing to me for sure. So I trust and I pray that... <clears throat> Day in, day out, when people ask me, you know, I, you know, I, my greatest desire when I pray for family life, of course, there are the prayers for individual challenges, the uncertainty of a diagnosis, health concerns, love for family and their spiritual needs to just where you're at in the phase of life. We're talking about these phases of life. I mean, when you're in that phase of life where you've got young kids and they're, you know, you think, I can't make it another day or... Others who, I mean, just it's daily, daily challenges, one day at a time. And yet with that, my, my greatest desire is that we, we continue reach towards being what God's called us to be. And perhaps even in, as Paul describes it here, just to live our lives cleansed, like, like the verse 1 says in chapter 7, right? We cleanse our lives and live a life separated to the, of the world and live for him. So what a blessing it is to, to read this text in a way for me. So I trust you have a wonderful week. You know, I, I don't catch everything that's on social media. So, uh, hey, if there's, if there's needs, I'd love to know what's going on in your life this week and how I can pray for you this week. From time to time, I, I'm able to re- touch base with some of you and say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? Because I... I want to know what's going on this week in your life that we can pray for, but without the generic wisdom and strength and courage and rest and peace and sleep. Uh, so don't hesitate to shoot me. It uh, doesn't have to be a long explanation. Say, hey, this week I've got this coming up. Would you be in prayer for me? And I, I'd love to, love to do that. Father, we, we can have these conversations because we've been reconciled with our Creator. Lord, I am touched by Paul's heart and admonition. Lord, may these truths be what drives us, Lord, to to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us, Lord, not to wait till our lives have passed to start contemplating what it means to invest in eternity. Pray for pastors who brings, Lord, this uh, perhaps concluding part of of Romans 7. And uh, just pray, Lord, that you might uh, give him liberty as he preaches. Bless these families this week. Give them the strength. Some are studying. Some have young children. The energy it takes to raise young children. The hustle and bustle of life. Would you 
Give them the strength of your word in the midst of that, that they might keep a, a, a broader perspective on the blessings of what you're giving them, how they, and they may, that they might grow through this, through their experiences, Lord, and that might be more sanctifying in your image. We commit these things to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.